Howdy friends, David Michael Phelps here. As many of you know, Working Man is the official podcast of Harmel Academy of the Trades. And as some of you may also know, we are located on the campus of Kuiper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, Harmel Academy is a Catholic school and Kuiper College is a reformed school. And so you may be wondering how that works. Well, one way of getting into that conversation is to talk about Kuiper College's namesake, the reformed theologian, Abraham Kuiper. And on today's show, we have just the fellow to help us do that. Besides being an old friend of mine, Dr. Jordan Baller is a reformed theologian who edited the volume Makers of Modern Christian Social Thought, Leo XIII, and Abraham Kuyper on the Social Question. Pope Leo XIII is often regarded as the father of modern Catholic social thought, and so I've asked Dr. Baller to reflect on some of the significant points of overlap between Leo XIII and Abraham Kuyper. Today's show gets Catholic chocolate in Reformed peanut butter and Reformed pita butter in Catholic chocolate. But if you think this is somehow going to be an exercise in dull theological speculation, you've got another thing coming. And there's even a brief appearance of boxing legend Mike Tyson. In reference, not actually. So without further ado, here is my chat with Dr. Jordan Baller. My name's Jordan Baller. I am uh, a senior research fellow and Director of Publishing at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I have various other affiliations and associations. I I work primarily in intellectual history, the history of moral theology uh, and historical theology, the history of Christian social thought, as well as some contemporary applications and thinking about social questions today, public theology, the the relevance of theological insights into the, the challenges we face as Christians in this world, um, trying to do justice to our calling. Where I'd like to start is tell me a little bit about this this name. Obviously, in Catholic circles, you hear Catholic social teaching a little more broadly. You hear Christian social teaching or Christian social thought. This is a designation that I yep. think is more modern, right? Where does it Where does it come from? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I I do know that contemporary in contemporary terminology, even in in scholarship, there's a distinction made between Catholic social teaching and and Catholic social thought. Teaching being the more narrow category, and thought being the broader category. So you could think of think of it as a distinction between, say, primary and secondary sources, where Catholic social teaching is the the body of teaching, the body of doctrine, the documents, the texts that the authority of the ch- the authorities of the church have promulgated in some formal sense. That's basically now looking back identified with its inauguration in 1891 with Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum. Um, to some extent, I think Leo was doing a new thing. That's in fact what the the Latin means <laughs> on new things, uh, and it can be taken in a number of senses. So. Uh, he was, I think, self-consciously in some sense doing a new thing in attempting to apply the timeless insights of the Catholic Church to the contemporary problems in a new way, or certainly the problems were new and more diverse, or at least the recognition of these, these changes was, was coming to the forefront of, of Catholic consciousness in a new way at the end of the 19th century. So that, in some sense, is the inauguration of what you, what's often called modern Catholic social teaching. And it includes the line of encyclicals coming, social encyclicals coming out of Rerum Novarum and inspired by it in many ways, including anniversary documents, a couple of important ones on the 40th anniversary, Quadragesimo Anno in 1931, and certainly uh, Centesimus Annos in 1991 from Pope John Paul II on the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. Catholic social thought is a larger category of reflection and engagement with those documents and others. 
So you could think of this as the larger world of reflection, engagement, dialogue, questioning, contention about the implications of Catholic social teaching. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this is that oftentimes we sort of go back and locate Leo XIII as sort of a, a milestone in uh, not that Christians weren't concerned before this with social questions, but we sort of go back and locate Leo the Thirteenth. It's a, it's it's one of those things you know history students like because it's like oh good we'll, we'll point to that. There's a date, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But one of the things I think is interesting is obviously he wasn't alone, and you've done you've done work where this also sprung up in the same year. In fact, from the reform point of view, right? So I think um, Leo the Thirteenth is probably maybe a little well-known name. Another name that's increasing in fame, so to speak, you know, a hundred years later is Abraham Kuyper. Tell us who that is. So Abraham Kuyper um, was a Dutch pastor, theologian, as well as a statesman, a politician. Uh, usually when you hear him introduced, there's a long litany of titles or job descriptions that, that uh, go along with it, including editor, controversialist. He, he, uh, he served in in public life as a member of parliament and then arose actually to be prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. Uh, he's a multifaceted, fascinating figure. And as it happens in the same year, later in the year that Rerum Renovarum was promulgated in 1891, there's a, a Christian social Congress in Amsterdam that's held. And these, this is one of a number of these social Congresses that were held across Europe at the time. And this is the first one that's held in the Netherlands in Amsterdam. Uh, and Kuiper gives the opening address in November, I believe, to this social Congress. And the title of his talk is The Social Question and the Christian Religion. And it's, it's fascinating, yes, that these two documents both appeared in the same year. Uh, there are some really interesting interconnections between these two documents. One, obviously, from the Roman, the, the Roman Catholic perspective and the highest authority in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, another from a leading figure in a Protestant tradition, the Reformed tradition in the Netherlands, who was also Abraham Kuyper, I'm speaking of now, was aware of what was going on in these broader conversations, including what Leo had written in Rerum Navarum. And there are some references back to Rerum Navarum in Kuyper's originally a speech and then published with much more extensive footnotes later in print form. Um, and he says at one point, I've, I've included these copious notes as an aid to anybody who wants to, to do more and understand kind of what the background is of, of what I'm saying in this speech. So the, these are these texts providentially form uh, a very fascinating and dynamic set of dialogue partners, I think. Uh, many shared perspectives, some distinctives in terms of emphases. Um, some of those you could you could predict based on the differences in confessional and ecclesial affiliations between these two figures, but uh, much more common ground than might be commonly supposed, given, you know, the rhetoric of Roman Catholic versus Protestant relations um, in previous centuries and even in the century following these two figures. I want to talk a little bit about some of those, you know, interconnections, but um, set the stage for us a little bit. What, what was the context for these for, for Leo XIII, for these social congresses themselves, for Kuiper sort of entering into this conversation? What was happening that, that uh, uh, made these men think something needed to be said? So they're writing at, at basically the close of the 19th century. Um, in Europe, a great deal had happened uh, in, that, in that century. 
to take one perspective, say the economic perspective, you've got the industrial revolution in full swing. It came a little bit later in the Netherlands, but by the time the end of the century has rolled around, the same kinds of effects on demographics and uh, income growth and inequality you're seeing in the Netherlands as, as other European countries. To summarize, basically, you've got vastly increasing amounts of material wealth overall and per capita across European nations, uh, different levels, but, but generally, you know, you're seeing doubling or even tripling of incomes per G, according to GDP as one measurement per capita over perhaps a, f- a hundred year period or even sometimes a 50 year period or less. Hmm. Um, at the same time, you're also seeing a, a doubling of population across the continent. So there's something like 187 million people in Europe at, in 1800 and close to 400 million by the close of the century. So you've got a lot more people and they're a lot more wealthy on average. Now, if you dig down a little bit, you've got increasing inequality at the same time. So much of those gains are, are in some sense uh, being enjoyed at the higher ends of the income spectrum. So you've got other dynamics going along with that, including people moving from rural and agrarian kinds of lifestyles and ways of living to much more dense urban populations. Um, the, the kinds of work that, <laughs> that uh, people were doing typically were, was undergoing vast changes. So there's a lot of disruption there in terms of the industry and technological innovation. And that's all on the kind of practical side. So I mean, we could talk about the limits of a, of a measure like GDP, and that's just one kind of picture, but it's at the beginning of this incredible period of, of growth over about 250 years. It's, it's, you know, a hundred years into this, that uh, there's so much disruption and new opportunities and new challenges that have never really been faced before in the history of humanity, given, given the novelty of this, this great enrichment as it's been called. So that's on the practical kind of side. These are just things that are happening. And then you've got the theoretical side. So, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, you've got Marx writing before that, uh, Adam Smith and classical political economy coming on the scene at the end of the 18th century. Those two kinds of theories you could broadly identify with with uh, something like liberalism or even in, a, in the economic sense, uh, kind of utilitarianism and socialism. And so you've got these dominant ideologies that are in, mm-hmm. increasingly in in play and, and becoming influential. You've got political revolutions starting, perhaps you could say, with the American Revolution, but also the French Revolution in 1791 uh, and later. Very important for Kuiper in terms of his own thinking. So we're 100 years on from this era of revolutions, not just an industrial revolution, but political revolutions as well. And increasingly uh, calls for Marxist resolutions and so on in in the wake of Marx. So um, and that's just the kind of. 10,000 foot overview of all of lots of things that are going on in the 19th sure. century. So there's a lot of upheaval, a lot of despair. Uh, Darwin also is on the scene now. So there's a kind of a naturalism that's going on. And, and so part of what Leo and Kuiper are doing is just trying to diagnose what's going on in society. What are the sources of what are clearly tensions, conflicts, and even ills that are afflicting social life in the Netherlands, but more broadly Europe and the world in that, in the, at the end of the 19th century. So what's going on in the world? And one of the things that they agree on is that uh, the human person, the picture of the human person has, has in some sense been reduced in these various ideological models or 
there's been a, a telescoping of, of the human person from a more comprehensive Christian picture of a person created in God's image, body and soul with an eternal destiny and a temporal calling to essentially variations of materialistic kind of ideologies that focus just on the person as they maybe enjoy material goods or are a fact a material factor in production and things like this. So um, mm. that's one of the starting points where they, where they agree is that what's, what is needed to recover to effectively address all of these comprehensive and uh, multifaceted challenges is a, is a picture of the human person in right relationship with God and others. All right. So let me ask you this then. Um, you've got, obviously you've got this, um, this, this large shifting landscape and people are, this may be hard for us to imagine today, but you have lots of unknowing and lots of foment and uh, <laughs> lots of concern. Yeah. We don't know anything about, about that today. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but that was the, that was the situation. Yep. What is the hope that documents or conversations like this might lead to? I mean, I'm playing a little bit devil's advocate here, right? Mm -hmm. There is, there's the notion of introducing these ideas back into the discourse, so to speak. But at the end of the day, for the, let's say the, 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 the 19th century fellow who maybe is in despair or is uh, toying with uh, uh, giving into his passions and joining the revolution or whatever it is, right? What, what sort of outcome do you think Leo and Kuiper and those like them are hoping by saying something? I mean, because a lot of people say, well, they should act, right? Shouldn't we act? This is, this is about policy. This is about action. This is, but these men are, they're giving speeches. Is that what's happening? Well, partially. Yeah. So I think it would be a mistake in some sense to take either of these documents um, and abstract them from the larger programs of what Leo and Kuiper mm. were trying to do. So these are these are documents that that exist within a larger program. Certainly, you could use that word for Kuiper. Yeah, tell me more about that. So Kuiper, let, let me just say a little bit about him. He he's um, one of the things that that uh, he's often credited with is is starting basically the first modern political party um, in Europe. It's called popularly the Anti Revolutionary Party. Um, it was first a movement, so it's important not to reduce this this uh, phenomenon to simply a political party as we might think of it today, either in Europe or the United States, but it was a social movement. It was a social movement that grew out of the Christian tradition from a reformed perspective. It was a movement that grew out of a certain kind of disposition that was informed by religion, but not simply religion. It had to do with culture and, and mores and uh, so other sociological factors among these groups in the Netherlands, shared narratives about history identity and these sorts of things. And there are two names for this movement. I've mentioned one of them already, the anti-revolutionary party. That's the sort of negative, you know, defining what we are against version of it that became more popular with it. But the, the positive name of this movement is the Christian historical movement. And so what Kuiper is really trying to do throughout his lifetime is introduce a reform movement with a small r into Dutch national life with an eye to the place of the Dutch in the larger world landscape. So he's definitely got an international and cosmic view even, but he also has a, you know, a keen sense of where he lives and what his identity mm -hmm. is and so on. So, you know, he'll say things about the place of the Dutch among the great powers of Europe and say, we're just a little country. What can we do? These sorts of things. But yet, you know, we're called to be faithful with what we've, 
the resources we've got and, and so on. So, so it is, it's comprehensive in a a very keen sense in trying to mine the insights of the Christian tradition in scripture, but also the history of the church, the history of thought of the church and apply those things to the contemporary challenges of the day. So in this sense, Mm -hmm. this speech in 1891 is a kind of a, a great representative or a representation of what Kuiper's whole, whole life is about uh, in some sense. So he's, he's drawing on the, the great wells of Christian insight and wisdom and applying them anew. So it's not just about repristinating, you know, 16th century confessions, although as important as those are for Kuiper, it's about being faithful to those, but then applying the doctrinal and moral insights from the great Christian tradition to all the, the challenges in a comprehensive sense. So one of the words that comes up in Kuiper's speech is architectonic which is a big mm-hmm. word for meaning comprehensive, basically. So one of the things that, that Leo and Kuiper are trying to do is define what the social question is. This is the, one, of the, one of the key challenges in the second half of the 19th century, the social question, sometimes understood as the relationship between labor and capital. But Kuiper says, basically, the social question, you're never going to understand it unless you understand it, not just as an economic question. So it's not just a matter of like just remuneration for manual labor or something like that, or even uh, distributive justice. In a, in a broader sense, or even political justice in an even broader sense, you have to have an architectonic or a comprehensive, all-encompassing perspective, comprehensive nature of the human person and body and soul. So it's not just about the material aspect, and it's not just about the spiritual aspect. It's about the right relationship between these two and all of uh, human society and existence and all of its complexity. So this is, in a sense, what, what, what Kuiper's program is about is an architectonic critique engagement, critical engagement through uh, revelation and through human reflection on that revelation are true insights about the right, right relationship between God and our neighbor. And so it's, you know, part of what you do is give speeches, but also part of what you do for if you're Kuiper is you edit newspapers, a political daily and a, a religious weekly newspaper for decades. You form political movements. You work for reform within the context of the church. You help encourage the formation of Christian working, working men's associations, a kind of Christian answer to, uh, say, socialistic ideological labor unions, labor unionism. Um, so he's casting a big vision in this, in this speech, as Leo is in, and they're trying to spark something. Uh, certainly, Kuiper realizes uh, when he's more honest that he can't do everything himself, <laughs> even though he seems to try. He, one of the things you do is you found a university. That's another thing that he does. Uh, a, a university that in name uh, institutionally still exists to this day, the Free University of Amsterdam. So you're an inst- you, know, you build institutions that can, can foster the kind of character and strength of intellect and will that are going to be needed to be faithful in terms of Christian discipleship today. So yes, part of what you do is give speeches and lay out agendas and outline programs and but then you also write devotionals and try to help people um, be closer to God in terms of their spirit, you know, their spiritual relationship and so on. Yeah. And that, that's part of what I was curious about and in, in sort of playing the devil's advocate there, because it, it seems to me that the, the temptation in considering documents like this or writings like this or, um, or, or, or anything historical or anything in some sense systematic, there's always this temptation to see those things as unities unto themselves or as a, a self-contained construction that if we can if we can just get the words right, if mm-hmm. we can just get 
the policy right, if we can just get, you know, the point of view right and all come to some sort of agreement about, you know, we're all speaking the same sort of social orthodoxy, yep. everything else will work itself out. And, and and it seems to me that what you're describing is that both of these men, sure, you have you have to think through those things, but what's actually happening here is what does it look like in their here and now to sort of embody the gospel and and live the kingdom in the concrete situations of their of their time and and not just in the abstract but what does it look like for christian people to in a sense incarnate the gospel in their family in their in their community in their neighborhoods and in in their work that's the sort of recalibration that needs to happen as the world seems to be going to hell around you it's interesting you know later in i think laborum exertions right when when John Paul says work is the key to that social question, yep. right? I think what he's getting at is there's it's not just the theory of work that is the key. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is in our work, we have this much more, uh, we're much more aware of our incarnational selves having to encounter, for example, this material in this space and time, my body here and now doing this thing. Um, there's a certain grounding that work does that is harder to have, say, in politics as we understand them today, which is largely pontificating about systems and ideas and policy and things like this. Do you think there's something to that, that what these men were doing is trying to locate people back in their particularities and say, basically to jumpstart their own understanding of what it means to live the gospel in their particular concrete situations? Am I reading too much into that? Indubitably, Mr. Phelps, you're correct. I, that's a that's a great point to bring in from Laborum. You know, to paraphrase Mike Tyson, everybody has a, a social theory until reality hits it in the face. <laughs> so, um, Kuiper and Leo are definitely theorizing here, but they're doing so in a way that is open to the world and directed towards the world. And I mean that in a broad sense, in terms of reality, ultimate reality. Of course, God being yeah, the ultimate yeah. reality. Um, so, for example, here's what here's what Leo says about orienting. And this is right at the again, the foundation of modern Catholic social teaching. He says about orienting this teaching to the world. He says nothing is more useful than to look upon the world as it really is. And at the same time, to seek elsewhere, as we have said, for the solace to its troubles. So there's, mm. there's multiple moves being made here. One is on the basis of Revelation. And God's gift of that to us, we have a clear or you know, a clear vision of what the world is. It really is not as it understands itself, but as it really is. And in light of that, we can see where it errs and where, you know, uh, diagnose the ills that are availing it. And then, of course, make the variety of prescriptions that are that are necessary, all the way up to including evangelization. Of course, is the key for both Kuiper and Leo. Um, there's a sense in which they diagnose the ills being ideological or theoretical, that there's this bad picture of humanity that uh, is at the root of uh, utilitarian and collectivist kinds of ideologies in the 19th century. But they both basically say that is actually a fruit, a consequence of a relationship that's already gone awry, which is the same mm. experience that we've been having since the fall. Uh, mm. And that is, you know, that man is wants to set himself up in the place of God. Um, that the 19th century, their context is a is a is a world that is basically characterized by unbelief in God. And so, 
part of what they're doing is tracing out the social consequences of unbelief and saying, look, mm. you know, it, it's not a private public sphere that you can totally separate. There's all of these important interconnections and integral connections between these two. And unbelief is going to have social consequences. And part of that is what we're seeing in their own time in terms of the upheaval and the revolutions and the destruction and the suffering. And you could say the same thing today. The other thing I, I would want to say is, and this is in some ways just reiterating the point I think you made rightly, in that these are models of how to be responsible and engaged Christians in the world. So they have things positively to teach us, certainly in terms of the, some of their ideas and some of their insights. Uh, they may have more or less authority depending on you know who, who the figure is and how you identify yourself in relation to that figure or tradition. Certainly in Kuiper's case, he also has some negative lessons to teach us in terms of what he actually believed or accomplished or was unable to accomplish or what he tried to do. But at the very least, these are very thoughtful and very insightful figures that we can learn a lot from, many of it positively, not trying to you know, reinvent something that has already been discovered, but applying it in a, in a new way and some, some ways negatively that uh, actually this theory or this, this uh, application of the theory was erroneous or didn't work in, in your own time. And as different as their world was in the 19th century, there are many, many similarities. There's a lot of, you know, I already talked about many of the upheaval. I mean, we're talking about revolutions still today in different forms, challenges of diversity of different kinds. Yeah. So maybe existentially, the question of how Roman Catholics and, and Protestants related in the Netherlands was much more to the fore in the end of the end of the 19th century than say it is today. But there's an analogous sort of challenge with world religions and traditions like Islam in the West. That's 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 analogous more to how do we get how do we live together amidst the different confessions and no confession, right? The confession of secular humanism and atheism. How do we live in a pluralistic society? Uh, the worldviews and ideologies that were at play at the end of the 19th century are still in existence today. That although they're in a much broader family and conversation, given the developments of globalization since then, so um, there are parallels in terms of the challenges that these men were facing with erudition uh, that we can learn from today, even if we don't slavishly adhere to every jot and tittle of what they, you know, instruct uh, their hearers to do. So let me put you on the spot here, Jordan. Um, and I understand that this is, there's a certain self-contradiction in what I'm about to ask you to do. Uh, imagine, imagine you're talking to just a, for, for lack of a better term, just an ordinary working fella right now. Uh, and he's in the context of um, of 2020. And if 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 the idea is that, okay, so these are models, these are insights, these are ideas, these are analyses, these are suggestions, and all these things to help us make sense of what it means to, in our embodied lives, live the gospel, and in our relationships to live the gospel. What concrete advice do you think can be found in Leo the Thirteenth and in Abraham Kuyper? that a working guy might be able to apply when he shows up to work tomorrow. And I understand that what I'm saying to you is yeah. the self-contradiction there is um, uh, making a concrete application of this uh, in an abstract thought experiment. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, I probably wouldn't lead with, depending on, on how, how well I knew the person and what their interests and dispositions were, I wouldn't necessarily lead with the name Abraham Kuyper and the Christian Social Congress of 1891 or Leo and Rerum Navarum, right? I would want to talk much sure. more practically about 
the ideas that I think would be relevant and valuable. Uh, let me, as a brief aside, let me say this is this is something that I think um, has plagued natural law discussions, uh, especially among Protestants, where it's it's uh, an inability to. There's much more telling rather than doing, right? Mm. So. I'm going to do a natural law thing now is often basically what's communicated. And therefore there's some implications like, Oh, you have to agree to my argument or you're unreasonable or something like that. Instead of doing what somebody like CS Lewis actually does, which is do not tell in many cases, certainly in, in some of the more narrative works mm-hmm. that he does. Right. Sure. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing what you might call a kind of natural law teaching, but not saying, okay, here I'm working from the first principles, of natural law and following and so on. So in the same way, I wouldn't start with, um, well, here are the four kind of ideas that you have to have from Catholic social teaching and learn how to apply subsidiarity in your own life. Um, so I may not even say the word subsidiarity, right? Even though in the context of thinking about the theories, that's a helpful word for understanding the history of what a term means and so on. I would just say asking, it seems to me from my own experience and with my own work and my engagement with people who work every day or don't have work, that work is a central reality. You know, echoing what John Paul says in Laborum, it's a central aspect of the solution to whatever our problems are. Uh, it's kind of what it's what in many ways we were created to be doing. So understanding ourselves rightly in relationship to our work, I think, can have a transformative effect. So the work may not look any different in terms of, you know, if you had a camera on the outside. But given the way that human beings are, are, are made and, and God created us, it's important to us how we understand ourselves in relationship to, to what we're doing. So in that sense, the, the insights from Leo and Kuiper that I would want to start with is, is a, 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 re, a revision of who the human person is in, in relationship to work. And that it's not something that we, we ought to be trying to avoid or minimize, something we ought to mm-hmm. celebrate. You know, in economic costs, in economic analysis, often labor costs are, they're a cost. There's something you try to minimize, right? Because it's, it takes away from the bottom line or whatever your calculations are. Um, and there's an aspect of that that's true, of course. And nobody should be wanting to spend their time in, in counterproductive labor or labor that is demeaning or understood to be demeaning or degrading. But at its core, work is a blessing and not a curse. And so that's where I would want to start in trying to help people understand anew their relationship to what many of us have certainly in the industrial age spend at least half of our waking hours doing during the work week. So that's where I would start is trying to understand helping people to, to come to a more positive, basic uh, understanding of work as part of the creation order, part of God's blessing for us, part of our responsibility, yes, but also a blessing to us. Uh, in ways that shape our character internally, that can shape us physically, certainly, for good or ill, but also the basically the fundamental way in which we serve our neighbor and in that sense, serve God. So let me take that one step further, because you've done some work in outlining what our own age's new things might be in trying to recover that notion of human work. You've You've talked a little bit about having to talk about these things in the context of automation, yeah. in the context of virtualization. Uh, sketch that out a little more uh, for us. What, what, what are the new things that we, that we face, our new context, that we have to, like Leo and Abraham Kuyper, 
we have to reconsider and rediscover the truths of human work in terms of this context. What's our new context? Yeah, so we, there's, there are continuing revolutions of various kinds. I mean, if Kuiper and Leo were in part co- concerned with the Industrial Revolution, that phenomenon that we often label the Industrial Revolution, where you've got mechanical inventions that are uh, enhancing human labor in some way and, and complementing it. We have a kind of the, the, the age of disruption and innovation of, that's often called the information age. Two aspects of that uh, are what you alluded to a moment ago, automation and virtualization. Um, there was an element, obviously, of automation in the industrial age and in the assembly line and the, the evolution of the assembly line. Now we've, we see the fruits of that 100 years later of continuing work to automate things and to relieve, in some sense, human beings of repetitive tasks. You know, there's two sides to that, right? Repetitive tasks can form you and discipline you to be able to do certain things. You can acquire skills by doing repetitive tasks, but they can also be enervating. Adam Smith, one of the, the, the founders of this age of enrichment that we've enjoyed over the last 200 plus years of, of development, uh, was concerned about the stultifying effect of um, the specialization of labor and the division of labor into very specialized and efficient means of production. So, you know, his example, one of his classic examples was a, a, a pin factory. Um, but we can see that as it's worked out over the, the 250 years since him in all kinds of different areas, how um, there can be a stultifying effect when human beings are placed in in a space where they're there basically for their hands and nothing else. So, you know, in that sense, that dynamic is just, uh, we're facing it again on steroids, you know, in the 125 plus years since Kuiper and Leo had dealt with it. Automation can be liberating in that sense, right? Um, my own kind of prudential position on it is, you know, if a machine can do, can produce the thing as well or better or more efficiently than a human being can, that's great because now you're, you're liberating a human being to, to be productive in other ways. Um, and I'll say more about that in a second, I guess, you know, another dynamic we've talked about is virtualization at, at, at the time of Adam Smith, Dave, we'd be sitting at a table enjoying bread and beer in the context of this conversation. Uh, we're doing it over zoom. So there's a sense in which our conversation right now is virtualized and it's made possible uh, through the amazing and miraculous uh, communications technologies that we get to enjoy and exploit now. The, the, the pressures of the economic pressures and the, the, the pressures of uh, industry are going to push things towards automation and virtualization as much as possible. And, you know, I think anybody who's been working from home in the context of this pandemic uh, have realized, well, there's some good things about virtualization. Um, maybe I only have to get half dressed. You know, people have been buying a lot more tops and less bottoms from stores <laughs> lately. Um, <laughs> but there's some trade-offs too. Like, you know, we can't clink glasses and toast. <laughs> we could do it virtually. You know, you have happy, you have virtual happy hours and so on. So there are trade-offs um, in all of these things. I think the key, one of the key perspectives to take is that these changes are going to happen. There are good things about them. There are down, there are downsides about them. And as inspired by Kuiper and, and Leo, we should be real realistic and clear eyed about what the downsides of these innovations are and, and do the best we can to ameliorate them through our own policy or through our own practices, but also through policies, whether that's in the context of, of a particular firm or an industry. 
to ameliorate those things, but then to take those challenges as opportunities. So, you know, I talked about uh, automation being liberating in some sense. Um, well, now you've got somebody who's free to use their mind, uh, body, and soul and apply that in new ways to other problems. So entrepreneurship is, is critical, obviously, to, to development, not just in terms of economic development, material development, but um, spiritual development. And how much more so in a context of, of disruption where many of the jobs that had been done historically are, are going to be made redundant in some sense, or certainly look a lot different in the context of, of automation and virtualization. How can human beings in their incarnated nature now be re reengaged and applied anew and energized anew to, to even more creative and dynamic ways of serving our, our neighbors? Um, that to me is exciting. Uh, even while it, you know, in, in, many moments and certainly for many people it's anxiety it, it produces anxiety and worry rather than hope but that that i think you know the the final word there should be should be hopeful because not only because we can trust in god but because this is part of his his will i think is is humankind working out all of the latent possibilities that he's placed in the created order for us to discover and to refashion anew and to to come up with new and creative ways to to serve him through serving our neighbor. You know, that it occurs to me to one of the things I've really appreciated in speaking with you we, uh, other conversations we've had before this one. Um, and especially as it took form in your uh, article in public discourse, this notion that, um, you know, in the way that I've characterized it as my takeaway in talking to you was in the same way that the sexual revolution required something like John Paul's theology of the body to help, Mm -hmm. recalibrate an understanding uh, of who we are in that regard of our being. Uh, in the same way, there's something like a, we'll call it a theology of the body, as you proposed, right, for a, a type of theological reflection on these questions of automation and virtualization, for example. It seems to me that one of the things, one of the opportunities that our own time uh, allows for is to always be making these eternal truths not only applicable to our particular context, but in making them applicable to our context, in a sense, we're making them our own. They're not this um, distant and theoretical abstract set of ideas, but it, it is a more sort of, um, to well, maybe not to oversimplify. I was going to say to oversimplify, but maybe this is the core of it, is basically to make our encounter with the word personal. Because that, because it's now applicable to me where I am in this particular context in terms of my individual self, my family self, my neighborhood, my society. It's, it's now the word is being born here in me. Yeah, this is the perennial challenge that faces every individual Christian is how to live faithfully in the world that he or she has been born into, right? And so thinkers like Leo and Kuiper and Dietrich Bonhoeffer are helpful in asking that question in these changing and new circumstances. What does it mean to follow Christ as a soldier, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, as a pastor, as a police officer, uh, as a community organizer? What does it mean to follow Christ in each of our, each of our callings? And in some sense, that's, that's only an answer that each person can answer for themselves. Ultimately. I mean, that's, that's, 
the implications of the judgment seat and God's relationship with the individual unrepeatable person that he has created. That's the, that's the weight of glory to use Lewis's expression that each one of us has to deal with, but we can learn from one another. We can help each other along the way. Um, we can learn and be helped by those who have come before and struggled and, and um, discovered things and made mistakes and so on. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about this, the, the, the realm of ideas and how that relates to practical action and policies. What we really need are policies. And that's, you know, Kuiper uh, and Leo were encouraging of action. They wanted action. And Kuiper himself was a man of action. Um, but they wanted the right relationship between intellective contemplation and activity. Mm. And so, yes, we must act, but we have to think and act. Mm. Kuiper, for example, says we, we ought to be engaged in study and action. We will not make any progress in tackling the social question with sentimental talk or shallow generalities. So we have to, we can't be content with, with a, a beautiful theory that uh, when it gets punched in the face by reality, you know, it's smashed to pieces. Um, it has to be made real in each one of our lives. And that is the challenge of Christian discipleship throughout history and today for each one of us. In that sense, let me pass along, I think, a key insight from, from one of Kuiper's younger contemporaries. Uh, Herman Bavink, who, like Kuiper, was a Reformed theologian, but also engaged in social and political life. Uh, this is what, what Bavink has to say about the kind of personal and social reformation we've been talking about throughout this entire conversation. He says, all good enduring reformation begins with ourselves and takes its starting point in one's own heart and life. This is in the context of his discussion about family, the institution of the family, which at the end of the 19th century, was in many ways under attack and being transformed, um, how much more so now. He says, if family life is indeed being threatened from all sides today, then there's nothing better for each person to be doing than immediately to begin reforming within one own circle and to begin to rebuff with the facts themselves, the sharp criticisms that are being registered nowadays against marriage and family. Such a reformation immediately has this, that in its favor, that it would lose no time, would not need to wait for anything. Anyone seeking deliverance from the state must travel the lengthy route of forming a political party, having meetings, referendums, parliamentary debates, civil legislation, and it's still unknown whether with all that activity he will achieve any success. But reforming from within can be undertaken by each person at every moment and be advanced without impediment. Um, so that's the starting point. It's not the ending point because to be faithful to that reforming within, we have to take concrete action within our own spheres and areas of responsibility. Some of us are called to be legislators. So, of course, the consequence of that would have to be bear fruit in in public life in that sense. So Bavink isn't saying don't form political parties. He, after Kuiper, he was the chairman of the anti-revolutionary party himself. He's just saying contextualize our quest for public justice and public action and social justice within the context of what's necessary for each one of us concretely in our own spiritual lives and our own family lives and our own social lives. Hey gang, as always, thanks for listening to Working Man. You know, for those of you who listen every week, you know this is usually the part of the show where I ask you to help us out by giving us a rating on iTunes or by sharing the podcast with a friend or by introducing someone you know, maybe a student or a donor or a priest or a shop owner, introducing somebody to the work of Armel Academy. And even though all of those things are very helpful to us, and even though it would only take about three minutes of your time to do any one of them, I'm not going to ask you this week to do any of them, even though you are still free to do any one of them, and it would probably make you feel great to give in to such passive-aggressive requests for help. 
But I am going to ask you to do one thing to help us out this week. If you could, right now, when we're done with this podcast, would you just say a little prayer for our upcoming inaugural year at Harmel Academy? We are mere weeks away from welcoming our first class. And after 10 years of scheming and dreaming and hoping and praying, this rocket's about to go off. But we know that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So as soon as you shut off this episode, would you just throw up a little prayer that God would bless us with the continued support we need, that he would bless our incoming students with safety and faith, and that this first year at Harmel Academy would be a successful one in all the ways the good Lord wants it to be successful. It would mean a lot if you do that for us. So thank you much, and we'll see you next time on Working Math.